Hello, and welcome to the Oddcast. Tonight, we're going to be discussing a few things, like ghost towns, and might do a little section on my writing. First, this is my first podcast, so be patient, please. (laughs) Um, The first thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about something that I've posted about a couple of times this week. Uh, it is in regards to charity. I intend to do the Creative Kids Club eventually. Obviously, I've, I've got that in my goals, and I've talked about it a little bit there. Um, the, uh, the charity I want to talk to you about right now is for the Native American people. Um, this is the in. IWRC, and I am going to be devoting half the proceeds from Bone Deep to this charity. It is a charity against um, domestic violence, uh, child abuse, and sexual violence against women on the reservations. And to say that this is a disturbing revelation for me is putting it mildly, but um, apparently there's a lot of rape and assault going on on the reservations, and it's not being perpetuated by Native men. So I've done a whole other podcast <laughs> that... Um, it's sort of a special. <laughs> I haven't uploaded it yet. I may never upload it. It's an hour of me just basically rambling and ranting. But <laughs> uh, what I want you to understand is that over 90% of these crimes committed on the reservations are committed by non-Native men. They are typically men that come onto the reservations to work there because, you know, The natives don't actually own the land. That's so wonderful, isn't it? That, you know, we wholesale, well, not we, but white men came and basically slaughtered them and kicked them off their land, raped their women, killed their children, did all sorts of horrible things to them, and then said, oh, here, have some land as reparation. You know, little tiny chunk of the land that, we've actually taken away. And now, I didn't know this was going on, and I wish, well, I'm not going to say I wish that I'd never found it out. Anyway, I was doing a secondary research run for Bone Deep, and this issue of the sexual assault came up, and there's a whole long post about it. You're welcome to read it. Um... And because Bone Deep and Getting Thin Before It and Beneath My Skin, which is the third novel, all center on this kind of violence towards women, it seems like the good choice for putting some of the proceeds back into a charity like this that is meant to help these women. It is uh, my understanding that there are a lot of Native women that work for this charity and they come from all over the country, so it seems like a very good choice. 
Um, I'm still researching, making sure that it is the best one, but the money's going to go back to uh, something like this for the Native people. And the reason being, well, if you've read the books and you know Eva is no, she, she is no angel, <laughs> uh, my viewpoint is basically hers. If you decide to force yourself on a woman, if you decide that you can't control yourself, which personally, if I was a man, I would, I would take that viewpoint personally. I'd be angry that they insinuated that I was unable to control myself. But um, in the book, she does not take this line down. Her friend is raped and murdered, and she goes psycho. She starts walking psycho streets, both sides. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's basically a good person who's been pushed over the edge. And in the second book, without spoiling anything, if you've read the prologue, you know, she comes back. And I never intended for the second book to exist. I had no clue who was even going to be in it. It was pretty clear from the very beginning that there was going to be this Native American character. Uh, I won't spoil him for you, but it was going to be clear there were going to be Native American legends involved. And the one in particular that was going to be involved, well, it's part of the story. And it's wrapped up in the actual plot line of the story. And, um, well, you know, I, it's given me nightmares, both editing-wise and just... Basically, I, I've scared myself silly with it. <laughs> so uh, I'm still not particularly happy with it. But it will be coming out on the 1st of June, uh, regardless of how I feel personally, because I've put it off long enough. But it was during the secondary re research run that I came across the information on the Native American plight. Um, and partially it was just, I'm not even sure how I missed it the first time, but it was very, very clear the second time I was having difficulty. For some reason, I would type Native American or um, American Natives into the search bar, and Google kept popping up India, which was infuriating. <laughs> to say the least, because these are two entirely separate races who have nothing to do with each other as far as culture goes. Not really. I mean, every culture has a little bit of a, you know, similarity here and there. But uh, yeah, that was that was crazy. It was insane. And then I started looking deeper and I stumbled across a video that detailed this horrifying number of women being one in three, one in three women being assaulted <laughs> at some point in their life. And some of them just completely going missing, some of them children. And our government has made a really weird loophole 
that makes this possible. They have made it so that if a man assaults a Native American woman off the reservation, they can, they can convict him. Okay, fine. But if he assaults her on the reservation, they don't have jurisdiction there, which is okay. However, they could give the rights to the Native American councils, to the tribal councils, to convict the man or do as they see fit with him, as they do with their own people. And our government won't give them that right. And I think that they're working on changing it, which is great, but just the fact that that loophole even exists in 2018, when we are talking, you know, uh, we get incensed over something that does happen in India. Like a girl gets, you know, raped and mutilated in India and we lose our, we lose our minds as we should, because that's ridiculous. It's just violence against women by, perpetrated by men for what? I mean, it just doesn't, rape makes no sense to me. And it never has, and it never will. And yeah, I'm the kind of person that you touch me and I'm going to take something with me. But, you know, it shouldn't have to be. It's my body last time I checked. I mean, I don't go around trying to steal your toes. <laughs> so what the hell? Why the hell do you think it's okay to put your hands on me when I've said no? It isn't. This is my body. I was born into it. Ownership is nine-tenths the law. And I have had it for never mind how long. And yeah, I'll protect it violently if need be. But, you know, I don't go around grabbing men. So, and I do understand this, this does happen to men. This kind of violence is not only women. It happens to men. It happens to small boys, which is even... Uh, I'm sorry, anybody who looks at a child like that, just, I'm, I'm of the mind that they, well, I'm sorry, they, they really ought to be removed someplace else, far, far, far away with no children. Make them an island somewhere. I can't outright say that I would like to see them all killed. I just, I think that we should make more effort to protect our children. Anyway, this little blurb has gone on long enough. I just wanted to let you know that part of Bone Deep is going to be going to the Native American um, charity, NIWRC. You can look them up online. Uh, and I've put a link in one of my posts for them. And I am also in, in the future as I gain more patrons, I'm going to begin giving some of my patronage to the charities like this, not just this one, to uh, abuse um, prevention for animals, uh, possibly husky rescues if they need it, because I do follow a lot of husky rescues. Um, it, you know, there's a, a chronic issue with them at this point, but it's going to go where I deem it to be best, and on occasion there's going to be a poll that says, hey, where do you think it should go? But as far as the Native American 
charity goes. It's going to be an almost constant um, presence in my giving because no little girl, I don't care where she lives or what her skin color is, no child should ever have to suffer this kind of horrifying attack. No child, I mean, I, I've been assaulted and I was an adult when it happened. I couldn't imagine being a kid. We're supposed to protect our children and it's just not right. I don't care if they're not your kids. I don't care if they have a different skin color. They deserve their life. They deserve to be happy. Children deserve to be happy. So that's all I have to say about that for right now. Uh, I'm going to leave you with some music for a few minutes. And then when I come back, we are going to talk about ghost towns. <laughs> I'm going to try and keep it out of the Old West, too, because, you know, those are just a little overdone. I'd like to keep it more in the kind of ghost towns that are a little less known and a little more fun. So I will see you soon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed those songs. They kind of reflect how I'm feeling about the topic we were just talking about. Um, from now on, I'm going to try and match the songs with what we're discussing. Um, this will be from my own personal music. I make um, soundtracks for my books. They don't always fit. Uh, sometimes I find that I'll end up listening to a soundtrack that is on Spotify already rather than the one I've made. But I try to kind of match up music. Um, I do tend to be very eclectic. So if you don't like one song, it's okay. You're probably going to hear something completely different later in the show. If you don't have Spotify, I'm not sure if you can even hear um, little previews of the songs, but uh, hopefully you can. Uh, I, I was debating on whether or not to actually use Spotify in the beginning, but you know, I, I eventually came to the belief that music will just make it better. I can ramble for an hour, and if that's what you guys want, I will run a poll. And if that's what you guys want, that's what I'm going to do. But um, I really want to add more to this podcast. I want it to be something you can look forward to. So let's start talking about Cahaba. It's in Alabama. It was the state capital, the first permanent state capital from 1820 to 1825. It's about a 20-minute drive from Selma, and it is very tourist-friendly. Uh, they do tours about once a year. Halloween, Halloween season, get your tickets, go down there, check it out. This is not your typical ghost town. This is not some, um, this is not one of the gold rush towns from California or uh, Arizona, Nevada, the places where you would expect to find a ghost town, the Old West ghost towns, which are so popular and I highly suggest them, but 
I wanted to do something just a little bit different. There are plenty of there are plenty of uh, ghost stories about this town. Uh, one in particular is a glowing ball of light that comes from the Civil War era. Kabawa, yeah, Kahaba. Yes, you can make fun of me tripping over this word repeatedly all you want. Um, originally, it was the state capital, as we, we spoke about, and it was abandoned the first time uh, because the swamp, the floods, and all of that. And it was, it, it, it came back into being a regular town uh, during the time of the big plantations, uh, it was part of the cotton uh, plantations and all of that that you saw in the South during that period in time. And then during the Civil War, uh, it was abandoned again, I believe right after, trying to find, I write this stuff down and then I can't find it. <laughs> That tells you everything you need to know about me as a writer, by the way. <laughs> but it was abandoned again, and then it, it saw a little bit of a, a reinvention when former slaves and their families came back and they inhabited it for a little while, and then they abandoned it again. And today, you can go visit it, like I said, during Halloween. They have... Um, they have graveyard tours and they tell you all the ghost stories and I'm not going to ruin it for them by telling their ghost stories for them. But it's a really creepy place, really fun place to go. And when I say ghost town, this one is uninhabited. But in my estimation, there is more to a ghost town than just being abandoned. And while we are going to cover a couple of other abandoned towns. We're also going to cover a couple that they're still inhabited, but they're known for their ghosts. And I bet you can pick out at least one. <laughs> I bet you can already guess. It's my particular favorite, and it's partially why I decided to start this podcast with uh, my podcast series with ghost towns. And hopefully over time, I'll get better at talking uh, I am going to be doing another podcast called Whiskey and Bones with a, an author friend of mine, Whiskey. Um, and we'll be talking about everything from spooks and legends to gaming. And some of you might know me through gaming. Uh, I used to play WoW a lot, World of Warcraft. I do miss it. But really what I miss are my mounts. So... <laughs> You know, <laughs> I can't quite justify spending the money on it when all I want to do is ride around on my skeletal undead horse. So, <laughs> but I do have some philosophies when it comes to gaming, uh, and we will probably um, attach to that podcast be starting a little group in World of Warcraft for people to come visit us and talk to us while we're on the air. Um, or off the air, for that matter. Uh, I do believe that gaming, 
can become a philosophy. It can teach you a good philosophy for life. It can teach you patience if you let it. It can teach you fair play. And it can teach you a lot about living in a world um, where not everybody plays by the rules. And I, I've always loved that about gaming. So that's always an option. Now we've started with old, um, let's see if I can get it right this time, Cahaba. <laughs> you think I'd be <laughs> able to say it. Cahaba, we've started with old Cahaba, and it is the most benign of our ghost towns. It's just, a, it, there's still some old uh, Civil War era, I think antebellum era buildings there. Um, and it's a good place to go visit if you're just a Civil War buff, and it's a good place to go visit if you are really into the spooky side of things. Um, and I'm sure that they could use your patronage. You know, it's old places like this are falling through the cracks. Nobody really has the money anymore to, to really spend on them. And we tend to get obsessed with the new. I'm a personal believer that I love holding on to the old just so that we can see how things were before. Maybe we can keep from making certain mistakes again, or maybe we can just learn from the way people thought um, about fairness, about spirituality, about a lot of things. And I don't know, I guess I just, I'm, I'm as eclectic in real life as I am with my music. I love a wide variety of things. So, uh, I'm going to leave you there with some music, and when we come back, we'll talk about our next ghost town. <laughs> See you in a few. And we're back. Okay, so I played those two songs to give you a little heads up on what's coming. If you're a gamer, like me, and you're old, like me, <laughs> You might remember the game Silent Hill, and you probably remember the movies, and I do believe they're still making the games. This was the first horror game I ever had. Uh, I used to watch my friend playing Resident Evil. She, she was terrified of the game. She would call me up if she was going to be alone so that I could come watch her play, and to be fair, we were both chickens. <laughs> I was practically underneath the couch watching her. <laughs> Silent Hill was the first game I bought for myself, though. I had a PlayStation. I played a lot of Spyro. Anybody that knows me from World of Warcraft can understand why it's a collecting game. And I knew where every single jewel was in all the Spyro games, except for the last... I wasn't too fond of, once they started putting in too much movie, I wasn't as fond of the game. I liked it back when it was less story, more finding. So, Silent Hill was a Christmas present to myself. And what a Christmas present it was. I brought it home, and 
I popped it in my PlayStation. <laughs> I started playing. And I don't think I was 10 minutes in before I realized what a horrendous mistake I'd made. I lived alone in an apartment. Um, this apartment was haunted. A lot of places I've lived have been haunted, in my defense. In Britain, if you don't have a ghost, there's something wrong with you. Anyway, <laughs> I started playing this game and um, I died multiple times in the beginning because, as I recall it, you go into this diner or something like it and it has a big window along the front and... Um, uh, the sirens go off, you get inside, and something flies through the window, and you're supposed to shoot it. Now, coming from someone who has mastered Left 4 Dead, the only reason I don't have the uh, um, expert achievements is because I can't find anybody to actually play with me <laughs> that wants to play this particular game. I have no problem with things bursting out of dark corners at me anymore. Uh, I'm a, I'm really good at headshots now, but back then, this was my first shooter game, and I died repeatedly because this thing, one of the bat light things, would come flying through the window, and even though I knew it was coming, each and every time, I would fling my controller in the air and cover my face with my hands. <laughs> Yes, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't care. The whole nation can know. I don't care. <laughs> Eventually, the man who would become my ex, now ex-husband um, <laughs> had to play the game for me because I was really interested in the story, but I could not deal with the stress of being scared like that every single time I played. So he would play, and I would do what eventually would become my main role in games like World of Warcraft. I would become the researcher. I was the one that figured out how to beat certain levels, how to get around things, how to, you know, if he couldn't figure out a puzzle, I was the one that had to figure it out. And I did this all from behind a sofa cushion. No kidding. We were living in Germany. Um, we had just gotten married or were about to. Uh, yes, I got married in Germany. He was military. He was stationed there. We'd been dating for four years. And um, things went a little sideways, and we ended up getting married in front of a German judge. And I took this game with me every time I went over because we got married there. I wasn't technically stationed with him, and I had to keep coming home. And I would go over, and he would play this game, and I would hide behind the couch cushion with my little head poking out, <laughs> ready to dive under any time. One of the scary things came dashing out of the dark, and, you know, basically being a gigantic ninny. <laughs> and the reason I bring this game up is because it is the, the town of Silent Hill is actually based on a real town. And you may or may not know about this. If you're a horror buff, you probably know. Uh, if you're anything like me, I love 
I don't know what it is. I love abandoned places. Like, I'll tell you in a, in a few minutes about an abandoned base in England that we visited quite often. We rarely got out of the car because I'm, I'm fairly sure it was illegal to get out and wander around. But I'll tell you about it in a little bit. But right now, let's talk about Centralia, which is the town that it's in Pennsylvania, and Silent Hill was based on it. It was a mining community. They mined coal, and it was actually quite, um, it wasn't a huge town, but they had over 2,000 people. You know, it was a decent-sized town, and it still is. <laughs> it's just nobody lives there. At least I don't think anybody does. If anybody does, it's uh, very, very few locals. But I do think they uh, moved them all out. And what happened was they were uh, having a landfill burning. And it went tragically wrong. And it caught the um, seams of coal underneath the, the earth. It caught them on fire. And they're still burning to this day. So that really gives new perspective to the term, you know, <laughs> pits of hell. <laughs> yeah. This town is uh, still just on fire from beneath. Um, and I do believe that they're saying that it could burn well into the next century, which is pretty bad. Uh, and, you know, if you look at pictures of this place, I do not suggest going there. Uh, the roads are unsafe. They're constantly cracking from the heat underneath, and you never know when they're going to open up on, like, a cavern down below. Um... But the town itself is still there, and it's still uh, standing, basically, but, you know, it, it's empty. Uh, in 1984, most of Centralia's residents relocated. They accepted a buyout from the government, which is typical in a case like this. I mean, what were they supposed to do? They just... You know, you can't leave, you can't stay. Something's got to happen. Their zip code has been revoked. You know, anybody that's still there has to receive their mail via the post office. And on one side of this, I can understand staying. This is your home. You were raised here. You were born here. You know, you don't want to leave. And on the other, I kind of think it's kind of like after you spill the milk, you don't pick it up off the ground and try to drink it. <laughs> it's not their fault, and it is tragic, but at the same time, it's like, dude, get out. <laughs> it, it's poison. Coal fire is poisonous, you know. Um, there's all sorts of bad things that can happen. And... You know, a, a lot of people do visit there, a lot of people do go, but understand that this is on, you know, this is your own, this is something that you undertake knowing it could turn out dangerous. You could step on the wrong piece of street and end up 
20 feet underground. Personally, I wouldn't mind going to look at it from a distance, but you probably couldn't get me within the town limits, not least because part of me would always be waiting for those stupid sirens and for something to fly through a, a glass window at me. <laughs> anyway, that's it for Centralia. When we come back, we will actually be talking about the abandoned base in England, and I will talk to you very soon. Welcome back. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed those songs. Uh, Thunderstruck is a particular favorite of mine, and whenever I think of the Air Force bases overseas, this is a song that, for some reason, comes directly to mind. Maybe because if you live with the jets long enough, it, it's one of those songs that just completely falls in with that lifestyle and that um, being there, being over there, hearing it every single day. Um, when you're just a regular, you know, American living in America, nowhere near a base, you have a certain way of thinking about the military. When you actually live with the military, well, it just becomes normal. But there's a lot of pride that goes with it, as there should be. Um, and, you know, I lived on uh, Lake and Heath for a very long time. <laughs> it was one of those bases where there were so many um, planes, so many jets coming in and out, and they were so loud that you had to stop talking if you were on the phone and one of the jets was coming in you just or they were taking off you just stopped talking and told whoever you were talking to wait a minute because you couldn't hear anything even if you had headphones on it didn't matter you couldn't hear a damn thing so um this base was one of the base we came across this base the first time on accident and we, we were, were rural kids. You know, we grew up in rural America, Midwest, lots of cornfields and country roads. We did a lot of country cruising when I was growing up um, and when I was a teenager and in high school and before I got married, before my husband left for the military, we did a lot of country cruising. So this was one of those things that we just did normally and we would get lost in Britain <laughs> on a regular basis and this was one of those that we came across it on accident the first time and then my husband found out a lot more uh, information about it and took me back and we would go back on a regular basis whenever we felt like you know just being a little bit spooked out because there's something about an empty military base when you live with the military and you live on the bases or you live near the bases and you have to go on to the base on a regular, uh, on a daily sort of routine, you, it's sort of like a school or a mall. You're used to it always. There's always motion. Even on, you know, the small bases on occasion, they, they get real quiet at night. But the regular bases, they don't. They, they are like a small city. They are constantly in motion, especially places like Ramstein, which I've, that's one of my favorite overseas bases. Uh, a lot of American military members can tell you why. 
Um, it's one of the most popular bases for American members because it is one of the biggest. It's the hub base, so you get a lot of stuff there that you don't get elsewhere. And when we got to Britain, the bases there are a little bit smaller. They're a little bit um, less busy. But Lake and Heath is one of those bases that's constantly going to, simply because it's the biggest base in Britain. Um, now, the base I'm talking about is called Upper Hayford. And it was used to house nuclear weapons throughout the, the height of the Cold War. And it, you know, it was a fairly large base. So coming into it, you know, a lot of the gates have been taken down. A lot of the fencing has been taken down, but the buildings are still there. And there's nothing more eerie than being someplace that you know there should be a lot of activity you know, your brain is used to it. Your brain is trained. It would be like walking into Chicago and not seeing any traffic. It just, it's creepy. It's eerie. And uh, we used to go visit it a lot. And, you know, we would, we would kind of stop and just look. We didn't get out a whole lot because, well... Some of the buildings were unsafe, and it was pretty much illegal <laughs> to get out and start wandering around in these buildings anyway. And him being military, you know, I was always of the mind, better safe than sorry. You know, you don't want to have to be explaining to your commanding officer why your dumb butt was wandering around on private property at some point or another. But anyway, this is, it's not technically a ghost town, but if you go look it up online, you will see lots of pictures of the berms where they used to keep um, a lot of the weaponry. And you can see pictures of the flight line. Um, it was, the flight line was originally built for the Royal Fly, Flying Corps in the, uh, in, during World War I. And RAF Upper Hayford remained British until about 1950. And the U.S. Air Force took it over and then rebuilt a lot of stuff. <coughs> and, excuse me, and um, there's a lot of stuff that is just so American. Like, you could see where the BX was. You could see, pardon my dog, she's complaining. <laughs> um you could see a lot of stuff there that was just so normal, like the commissary, the BX, um, the laundromat. You could still see where the signs were. You could still see where they had painted certain, the building numbers and everything. And it's one of those places where a lot of people have a lot of ghost stories about it, a lot of ghost soldier stories. Um, I could spend a whole episode just talking about the ghost soldier stories I've heard in general from the military members. Um, if you happen to live in Britain, it's I, I fully suggest going there, checking it out, seeing what it's like. 
Um, it's really honestly an awesome place to look at. Uh, there's a couple others in Britain that I'll just mention real quick. There's RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk. Um, this one was a bit smaller. And for a while, and it's been reopened is my understanding, but for a while we had left uh, RAF Fairford behind as well. And I can't remember where that one is, but we actually were there during the time it was closed. So <laughs> um, we were stationed at Crowton and RAF Alkenbury is actually not abandoned. I don't know why it's on the list as abandoned, but it's still there. And it's one of the Cold War bases as well. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny little base. It's only slightly bigger than Crowton. Anybody who's been in the military in Britain probably knows these bases uh, and knows the nightmare <laughs> of the trek up to Lake and Heath. If you want to get anything on base, um, you can get a lot of stuff off base when you're living in Britain. And quite honestly, I got used to shopping at the British uh, stores, in particular for produce, because the produce flown in for the military is um, tends to go bad fast. And it's cheaper to buy it off base anyway. So stuff like that we would buy off base. But... These abandoned bases were always a big fascination for me because they just, you could see where life had been, where, where you know, and when you're military, it's kind of like if you live in a small town and you happen to walk into another small town that's abandoned, it's so curious and it's so creepy. Um, it's always a big basis when I'm writing ghost stories. These are the kind of things that inspire me. Um, I told you I would talk about my writing a little bit, and this is partially why I've brought up Upper Hayford, because this is one of those towns, or, yeah, towns. <laughs> this is one of the bases that we used to visit on a regular, uh, uh, regularly, and it was the inspiration for a whole lot of short stories that the world has never even seen. Um, I might start releasing them on Patreon uh, as the secret stories or just as fun little treats for my patrons. Just random little, hi, I felt like giving you a gift stories. But a lot of it, a lot of fear um, centers around things that we don't really understand it. We think we do. We think we understand what fear is. Um, but it's been my experience that it's not the ghosts that scare us. It's the unknown. It's the things that could be there that we don't know whether they are or not. This includes, you know, places like an Air Force base where you know that there should be planes coming in and out, where there's trees growing out of the laundromat ceiling. You know, these things, they kind of, they, they, I think, trigger something primal in us 
that in seeing places like this where there was obviously a thriving civilization that has turned into just abandonment and being overgrown by nature is sort of like a prophecy for what could happen to the human race in the future. And I'm not going to go on and on about it, but this is one of those things that I do try to find when I'm writing ghost stories because I believe that it's more frightening to come up against the echo of something that was and know that everything normal is gone, that, that what should be there no longer is, is way more frightening than seeing a spook or a specter come walking out of the wall. That's That to me is just like, I've seen ghosts. Uh, I'm a full believer in ghosts. I've seen them before. And honestly, that's less frightening to me than these places that are just empty. So anyway, that's that's it for um, Upper Hayford and the abandoned Air Force bases, uh, Cold War Air Force bases in uh, Britain. And next we're going to be doing one of my favorite ghost towns as the finale. So sit back, have a listen, enjoy the music, and I will talk to you soon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the music. Okay, so I'll save the best for last, really. There's two towns that I'd like to talk about that, in all honesty, they're not typical ghost towns. They're not abandoned. Um, The first is Salem, Massachusetts, of course. Uh, We all know that this town is just one of those places that, depending on your viewpoint, it is either full of tragic history, or it is full of um, plenty of fun spooks, or, if you're like me, both. Um, I know earlier in the podcast we did talk about like racism and uh, putting other people down based on something as silly as skin color or gender. And Salem, Massachusetts is one of those places that I think this is... M- best defined um, in in the simplest terms. You can see it so clearly, you don't need anybody to point it out to you that this happened because, you know, these women were declared witches. Um, There's a lot of debate over whether the little girl in question that started the whole thing um, was just making it up or you know if it was hysteria or and this is a a possibility um they ate a lot of rye rye bread back then and you know it wasn't like it is today we didn't have preservatives we didn't have uh, a lot of stuff to um keep our food fresh long after it should have gone bad and rye seeds believe it's rye seeds um sorry yes it's rye seeds um they get a a type of mold on them that it causes hallucinations think of it as uh hallucinogenics for the 1600s (laughs) um 
20 innocent people were put to death during the witch hysteria of 1692. Only one of them was a man. And he was the only one that was, that was Giles Corey. And he was pressed to death, which is nightmare fuel enough, if you know what that means. Um, they took heavy stones and they kept adding them to the pile on him. He refused to. Uh, it, he refused to confess to being a witch, and that's why they did this to him. Contrary to popular belief, none of the women were burned alive at the stake. In fact, this is something that um, was incredibly rare, even in Europe during the height of the witch hysteria. Um, Typically, the women were hanged and then burnt. Uh, their bodies were burnt so that they could not reanimate. There was a lot of there was a lot of <laughs> weird beliefs, and you know if if you you know anything about history, you know that they didn't think it was weird. It's kind of like today we believe a lot of things that aren't true. And as science disproves them, you know, we have to keep coming around to a different way of thinking. The best thing I can think of, the best example of this, is actually um, related to physics. They've proven that you, me, everybody, everything is all at its base made out of the same material, which makes sense when you think about the Big Bang and all of that. And they, ha they can actually prove to you at this point that what you think about will actually gravitate towards you. And one of my favorite experiments, it's absolutely mind-boggling. They, they built this machine, basically uh, like one of the ro robots that you might see in the bot wars kind of thing and they built an arena for it and they would put it into this arena and they built it so that it spent 50% of its time on one side of the arena and 50% of its time on the other side it turns without fail by the time they're done with it it, it without fail turns um, opposite directions like 50% of the time it goes left, 50% of the time it goes right. And then they hatched some chicks, some chickens, um, and they let these chicks see the robot as their mother. It fed them. They, they designed it so it could feed them. They designed it so they learned to follow it. They imprinted on it because birds imprint. Well, they then put the robot back into the arena and they placed the chickens in a little pen to the left side of the arena. And keep in mind, the robot's a robot. It can't feel anything towards these babies. It is not a mother. It's not a learning robot. It does what it's designed to do. The robot proceeds to spend most of its time turning left towards the baby chicks. The more the baby chicks call for it, the more it turns left. 
And they are, as we speak, trying to prove that when you think about something hard enough and long enough, it tends to gravitate towards you. And, you know, you see this in your everyday life, whether you realize it or not. I am one of those people <laughs> that used to be terrified of bees. I say used to because over the years I've grown less and less afraid of things, especially bees. And it seemed like the more afraid I was, the more often I got stung, like just absolutely. I haven't been stung in over 10 years, not since I learned not to be afraid. And that's not like stone proof, but you, you know, there's a whole bunch of physics books on this that can, that can explain it far better than I. Suffice to say that what you think happens, what you think rotates towards you. But we have spent decades trying to prove that science, not magic, is real because this all sounds very magical. So when I talk about the Salem witch trials, when I talk about the fact that women died um, for nothing more than a child screaming witch, uh, I, I want you to understand that while you might see it as crazy, and it was, it's insane to hang somebody for something like that to me. I mean, that's just crazy to me. Um, it, to them, it was very much justified. To them, this person was a criminal. To them, this person was a danger to them. It was someone who was going to take something that was theirs and the only way to stop them was to murder them and back then they were a whole lot more invested in religion particularly christianity and that was the other thing these women were con were considered to be uh, hosts of the devil you know so there are all sorts of videos that you can go look at there are whole websites based on Salem and there are whole websites based on the ghosts that haunt Salem there is a witch's house where there's believed to be a curse on it and there are places where you're supposed to be able to see let me see um, you're supposed to be able to see the ghosts peering out of windows and different things like that so you know this is a this is a place that my Halloween side gets a little excited about and my human side gets extremely agitated over. <laughs> but um, that's the first of the famous towns that I'm talking about. And then the other one is, of course, because what podcast on ghost towns would be complete without the most famous ghost of all? And that's Sleepy Hollow. But there's a reason I'm bringing up Sleepy Hollow. And there's a reason that I didn't spend more time on Salem. Um, this is the, um, this ghost is going to be a basis for one of my future books. In fact, 
a girl named Coffee might touch on this ghost um, at some point. The ghost of Sleepy Hollow, we all know it. Uh, originally, Sleepy Hollow was known as Terrytown, but Washington Irving made it famous as Sleepy Hollow, and they have recently changed their name to reflect, you know, the more popular name. It's good for tourism, and a lot of people want to go there. It's a beautiful little city anyway, even without the ghost, and I believe they still do hayrides on Halloween. But let's talk about the ghost, the headless ghost. Now, if you've seen the movie, you've read the book, you know that it's supposed to be a soldier who lost his head. And he's chasing people down, trying to get his, to get a replacement for his head. And the reason I bring him up is because I want to bring up a very different type of ghost. Uh, it's called a bargeist, or a bear ghost, would be the literal translation of it. And basically what it is, is it's a town ghost. And the reason this connects up to Sleepy Hollow, and the reason I'm going to be using it on my own town, um, is because it most often is presented as a man or woman who is headless and riding a big black horse. Fun, huh? <laughs> and um, generally, like back in the day, this is a German originated in Germany and it uh, referred to almost a nature spirit uh, bear ghost is literal translation and yes it does sometimes present itself as a large lumbering bear and the reason I'm going to be using it is the same reason that I find the Sleepy Hollow uh, story so fascinating because the you know gist of the story if you've watched the m movie you know they present it as an actual ghost if you read the original Washington Irving tale you can almost think of it as a murder story because Ichabod Crane vanishes and the suggestion was that Brom was the one behind the ghost chasing him to begin with. And that he, he murdered Ichabod is the underlying vibration that sometime during their wild ride, he managed to knock Ichabod off his horse and murder him. Or maybe Ichabod really did just flee the town and stay away. Um, but what's really interesting is if you read an unabridged version of the tale, uh, at the very, very end, it's Brom that's actually telling this tale to the narrator. And the narrator's just repeating it. And it becomes very clear that when he leaves, Brom himself is a ghost. So we don't know what happened to him. We don't know why he died. Maybe this was punishment. Maybe the ghost came after him for being so flippant with his legend. Or maybe it was his punishment after he died a natural death to have to be the, the ghost that he was telling the tale about. And 
any way you cut it, it's kind of a, a spooky little ending. And I do love the ending. And it was, you know, the writer in me just adores it. And, you know, it, it's such a fun tale. So when I was researching my little haunted town, I wanted something similar. But I didn't obviously want to bring the Sleepy Hollow ghost into it. And then I, I sort of stumbled across a conjunction of ideas where there's this bargeist or town ghost uh, from old legends. And you can look it up. You can look up all, all the regular details. I've added some stuff for myself that is going to be in my story. But I like the idea of a whole town being haunted. We've seen this before. I mean, it's nothing new. You see it in It. And from what I've read of Summer of Night so far, you see it in that story. You see it in Sleepy Hollow, that a whole area can be haunted. It is a particular favorite of mine, excepting one particular scene that I think just, you know, it, irritate, it irritates people more than it should. Um, and I won't get into that right now, but basically, I love this idea of a town being haunted. I think Stephen King says it in his book on writing, where he says his, the idea simply came out of the question, can a whole town be haunted? And part of the reason I brought up the ghost towns today and I didn't tell a whole lot of ghost stories, and I shouldn't need to. It, it's about the eeriness. You know, ghost stories are great. They're fun. They're fun to listen to late at night, and they spook, they, they spook you out, and they give you a good thrill. But there's something to be said for that emptiness, that darkness, you know, and... The only ghost story that I really meant to tell tonight was the one about the Bargeist and this particular story of this town that I'm going to be creating that I've already, you know, I've roughed it out. And basically, this is just, this is the writing portion of our little podcast here. And I hope to God this is worth anything. If it's not, next time I will uh, actually have callers and I will do this. I will try to do this live. I wanted to make sure that I could speak. Because <laughs> sometimes I have trouble speaking. Like I stumble over my words a lot. And I wanted to make sure that I could actually talk for a little while. Um, so that if I go live, I'm not just sitting there with dead air. <laughs> But um, the Bargeist in my story is semi-imprisoned by this town, and not particularly the town, but the people who founded it. And if you look up Dudley Town, we might do a segment on Dudley Town at some point in the near future. Um, the town is cursed, and... The ghost is cursed with the town. The town is cursed with the ghost. And it's not really a ghost. It's more of a nature spirit. It's more as the Bargeist 
is presented as far as my findings go. It is a town that was founded by Celtic-type people, uh, Scottish, Irish, you know, people from that came here with their beliefs and their thoughts and their their stories and they brought this thing with them and it is directly linked to the founding family of the town and it's not that the family is evil or anything they aren't um they are actually the most tragic figures in the story and the town really isn't tragic at all. It's the story's a little sad, but the town itself is just uh well, how do I put it? I grew up in a small town. I grew up in a small midwestern town, and as much as I hate it, I also love it. Uh, growing up, it was too small, it was too prejudiced, it was too a lot of too many everything. And it was very boring. And it isn't even one of those small towns that has the decency to have a decent festival or, you know, we're trying to bring it back. But it's really just one of those places you don't go to and you don't know where it is. If you see it on a map, it's because you're looking at a very large map. <laughs> <laughs> of Illinois and I grew up reading things like Boy's Life by Robert McGammon who is one of my favorite authors and I grew up reading things by Stephen King who is so wonderful at bringing that mesh of relationships into a story and I wanted to create I've always wanted to create a town similar to these small towns that you find in these stories because it's not so much the ghost that's important it's the people you fall in love with the people in the stories and to me genre maybe this is why I jump jump genre so often genre is just a qualifier it's just some place to stick the story when it's done the people should never take second fiddle to the genre. Um, what makes a great story great is the people in it and how they behave. I mean, I can tell you a ton of twisted fairy tales. I, I've got several in my head. You've probably, if you're one of my patrons, you've already read part of Damsel in Distress. I am trying to finish it. I appreciate the patience that you guys show me. This has been a really weird episode of my life. I'm just now starting to find my feet. Um, choosing to remain on a path as unsteady as creative writing. Uh, when you don't have anything to begin with. is a bold an intensely frightening move and there have been some hiccups um, I'm used to writing when I feel like it and I have been trying to undo that behavior I've been trying I'm perfectly capable of writing every single day 
whether or not I write on something I actually need to be writing on is debatable. Uh, I spend about 90% of my time coming up with new stories and the other 10% actually writing on things that need to be finished. I'm probably speaking too fast at this point, but um, the reason that I stumble so often trying to finish things is because I'm used to working in a different manner. And I'm currently, I've always had different ways of dealing with writer's block. I actually do have a little, um, I, I actually do have a little bit of a, <laughs> I've gone on too long. I'm sorry. <laughs> so sorry, guys. Uh, I'll wrap this up pretty quick. But I actually have a new method for dealing with my tendency to um, jump. My I, I call it my ADHD writer's brain. And I'm right now detailing it on my free blog, Darkwood. It's called The Commonplace Book. It's not an actual commonplace book. It's, it, it's in the same vein. It's in the same idea class as the commonplace book. But what it really is, is a gigantic dossier on my current project. Those were my dogs deciding to play. If you can hear them, <laughs> they are hilarious. I'll be posting more videos, videos of them next week. That's Loki that's making the pig sounds. <laughs> and um, this, this book is basically a half research file, half keeping track of what I'm reading and why it is inspiring me. And it's partially keeping hold of the little bits. I tend to write like the characters will just start speaking in my head. And I tend to write little bits here and there. And it keeps that in line. And then it has a calendar, which I've already detailed in the blog. Um, it's basically what I call my vision calendar. It's a, it's a vision board of sorts. It keeps me in line. It tells me where I am, what I'm doing. It allows me to pick up on what, where I'm going wrong. Now, I'm kind of, as you might have picked up from this podcast, I'm kind of random. I always have been. It's not something I can really stop being. So my, my idea is to embrace it. I have a file on my computer called the Vision Quest file. And it holds all of my story ideas. And I basically dump into it. This is my new way of dealing with my ADHD brain. <laughs> I dump into it when I have an idea that I want to explore, or I have an idea of, on one of the books that I've already, that I know I'm going to be writing. And it allows me to download 
all this information in my brain. And then the book, which is basically a planner, it's like one of the old day planners, day runners. Um, this allows me to uh, keep track of the current project. And it, it does something that I, I think of it as sowing a field. It sows the story. It, it gets all the seeds together in one place so that they can grow into something better. And the reason I'm doing this, and I say this for my old fans, for people who have been here, who think that I'm already a good writer. I appreciate you guys. I love you to death. And sometimes I agree. I just had to reread Getting Thin. And honestly, it's one of the best things I've ever written. And if I could make every book come out with that kind of power, I'd be happy and I wouldn't be looking for a new way to do anything. Unfortunately, my books tend to come out kind of distracted. I don't, I can't really understand it myself. I've suffered from this my whole life. It's something that used to affect my schoolwork in particular. It's like when I watch the movie Walter Mitty, I love that movie, and I love it because it's very much like me. This is how I live. I live in a, in a world where half the time my brain is wandering off into fairy tale land. And that is why I'm working on a new way of writing. Hopefully you guys will get to hear all of this. I won't get too embarrassed to actually post it. Uh, that's debatable because I feel like I'm rambling again. But <laughs> uh, I'm going to let you go now with a couple of final songs. I will see you next week. Hopefully we will be live. I'm going to attempt it. If we are live, you are welcome to call in. Uh, I will give you the number. And if you want to be a go guest on the show, like if you're a writer and you want to be a guest on the show, let me know. Um, I might start doing guest shows soon. And even if I don't do guests on this particular podcast, Whiskey and Bones will probably have plenty of guests. We're not sure exactly what direction we're going to head yet, but we're really excited about it. So I will see you guys soon. Enjoy the music. I love you tons. Thank you so much for believing in me. You, you guys are the reason I keep trying to be the writer. I know I can be. So thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great week. Have a great Memorial Day. We'll see you soon. Bye.